This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration's accelerated approval pathway allows for the use of surrogate endpoints to make therapies more quickly available for unmet medical needs. About 82% of the drugs approved under this designation have been for orphan indications. But controversy around its use to win approval for Biogen's Alzheimer's disease drug Adjuhelm last year set lawmakers off on an effort to reform how the pathway is used, and to place new requirements on drug makers. The healthcare consulting firm Vital Transformation recently did an analysis on the effects potential changes to the accelerated approval pathway could have and found that as many as two-thirds of treatments approved this way would no longer reach patients. We spoke to Joanne Schultes, CEO of Vital Transformation, about proposed reforms to the accelerated approval pathway, the findings of his firm's analysis, and why these changes could have dire consequences for rare disease drug development. Dwayne, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. We're going to talk about accelerated approval, the controversy around the U.S. Food and Drug Administration designation, and a recent analysis from your firm, Vital Transformation, conducted on the effects potential changes to the designation would have on drug development. Let's start with the designation itself. What is accelerated approval and, and why was the designation created? Uh, the, the accelerated approval came out of a lot of the requests and the challenges in developing HIV and AIDS treatments in the late 80s and early 90s for those who don't have gray hair like I do. Uh, the reality is there were, um, you know, the pandemic hit when the AIDS pandemic hit and it was ravaging, you know, the homosexual and gay community, particularly in San Francisco and New York and then globally. The, the fact was we didn't have any effective treatments and, you know, people were dying mysteriously. Then we found out, okay, this is a virus. Ironically, it was a coronavirus. At the time, we had no practical treatments for them. And so the reality was we needed a pathway to start putting experimental drugs into uh, people's bodies quickly that showed promise. So there developed a pathway that would be able to use drugs that had promising indications, not necessarily endpoints. And if you think about, for those who may not know what an endpoint is, uh, when you say a hard endpoint and when this is used in clinical research, 
basically that's are you alive or dead uh, did you survive are you alive five years after having cancer these are these are called hard endpoints did um you know did your melanoma return do you can you continue to walk if you have duchenne muscular dystrophy that's what we call a hard endpoint and often these things evolve over time now if you're dealing with an emergency situation like you had with hiv and aids time was uh, not a commodity we had to spend overwhelmingly we didn't have much of it so we needed to find ways to start testing these drugs that showed promise. And we would we would do so with something called a surrogate endpoint, which means not a hard endpoint, but a proxy, something that we could use that should be deterministic of outcomes. So, for example, in cancer, do you relapse or not? If you don't relapse and we're showing that this drug stops you from relapsing, that would be a good surrogate endpoint for overall survival. So in 1992, we passed the accelerated approval that allowed us to use drugs that show promise with these secondary slash surrogate endpoints, these proxies for hard outcomes in lieu of having an outcome where we had high unmet medical need. And, and that's really what the accelerated approval was. In 1992, we rolled it out um, in the U.S. Then uh, the EMA came a few years later with what they called conditional approval. And generally, it's been considered a huge success. Obviously, this led to AZT and many of the multi-combo therapies that are now very successfully treating HIV AIDS um, to the point where it's a chronic condition now, though this didn't exist, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So that's what the accelerated approval was. Uh, how does the designation work? Who's eligible and what rights or responsibilities does this bestow on a drug developer? Sure. I mean, basically, it's the FDA's call, and essentially what we're looking for are areas of high unmet medical needs. So these are places where we don't have a treatment. There's not currently an available pathway to, you know, treat people. It's often late-stage failed cancers for which we don't have good treatments. For example, leukemia, rituximab works extremely well in 60 to 65% of cases. People come in with um, a lymphoma of some type or a, a, a B-cell lymphoma, and they walk out cured. But what do you do in those cases where they don't come out cured? And what if the treatments we have don't work? So essentially what we did is we were looking for drugs and treatments that would provide promise in areas where we don't have current treatments. And, and that's a call by FDA. It's defined as an unmet medical need. And essentially what that does is you use this surrogate endpoint to say, okay, we're stopping tumor growth here. We think we'll have outcomes. And then the FDA requires you to do what's called a confirmatory trial. Um, and then when you satisfy that agreement, you quote unquote convert, and then you fulfilled your obligation. So you have to do a sort of a parallel. It's not really a phase four sort of post-marketing um, uh, evaluation and measuring that we do now for pharmacovigilance. It's, it's more of like a, a phase three slash phase four simultaneously. So you're doing confirmatory evidence, but it's a full approval. There's enough evidence to say, yep, we need it. You get the approval, but then, you know, we expect a certain amount of evidence with a certain amount of people in, you know, three in the median for if we, when we looked at the ones that have uh, cleared over the last 20 years, the median's about three years. So it takes about three years, 50%, you know, half of the drugs we saw convert in three years. So they fulfilled their obligations with the FDA. What's been the impact of the designation on the development of new therapies for rare diseases? Well, it's been hugely impactful, obviously. I think one of the key things that we uncovered, which was quite unexpected, was first off the high amount of orphan conditions 
that this treats, it's over 80%. So, you know, four out of five uh, of these approvals are for orphan conditions, which roughly want less than um, five and 10,000 people. So we're talking pretty small indications. These are pretty narrow areas. A, a lot of them are oncology, particularly over the last 10 years. We see a lot of cancer drugs, but a lot of that's been driven by three drugs alone. Keytruda, which is a very successful late-stage oncology product. Optivo, which is now curing 50% of people with melanoma, which you know five years ago was virtually untreatable and was essentially a death sentence. And Gleevec, which is arguably one of the most effective cancer drugs ever invented. So they hold over 50% of the secondary indications, these other pathway indications that can be given once a drug is approved. So you see it's a lot of action in oncology, but what it's also done is given a leg up for a lot of these very, very small orphan conditions. For example, uh, Gaucher's disease, uh, Genzymes drug, one of the first quote unquote orphan conditions. This is a frightfully small population, you know, 50, 70 people a year, maybe. Um, you know, the entire clinical trial was only 40 people. So it, it was a vehicle and a vector to allow that treatment for Goucher's disease by Genzyme to come to market. And without it, frankly, probably wouldn't have happened because there's no way you would get the hard point evidence that would be normally requested under a three-phase three trial without the ability to use that quote-unquote surrogate endpoint. The designation became the center of controversy with the approval of Biogen's Alzheimer's drug Aduhelm in part because the agency went against the recommendation of its advisory panel that found there wasn't adequate evidence of efficacy and concerns about the validity of the surrogate endpoint used. There's long been concerns about drug companies not following through on required studies and ineffective drugs remaining on the market. What's underlying the debate on accelerated approval? Well, John Dwyer, who was on our panel at Bio. Um, he's obviously very involved with us against Alzheimer's, uh, a well-known entrepreneur, sold several companies to Unisys. I mean, this is a guy who's really very, very good and someone who's very serious. You know, he's quite pointed in his criticism. He said, look, this is about budget, period. Sue Passion from um, the Alliance for Aging Research in Washington, D.C. is of the same opinion, as is George Radenberg. Uh, many known, well-known, very respected philanthropists in the United States. The, the reality is... Um, in our evidence and what we saw when we did our research, overwhelmingly, you can determine the length of time it takes to fulfill the FDA obligations by the size of the clinical trial. We ran a statistical model. We did a multiple regression on this. And the evidence was really quite strong. I mean, there's less than a 1 in 2,500 probability that this is occurring with random chance. So the p-value is 4 out of 10,000 which statistically means this is a pretty strong statistical relationship that says, hey, something's going on here. And so overwhelmingly what we saw in our data was the smaller the clinical trial, the longer it's going to take to, take to fulfill that confirmatory evidence with the FDA. So rather than there being some grand cabal conspiracy about uh, organizations not fulfilling their obligations, we really saw that, you know, you can actually model this and map this quite clearly and see that not only does it have an effect on the ability to, you know, close and confirm evidence. I mean, if you're only dealing with a micro orphan of 100, 200 patients a year, let's not forget Duchenne muscular dystrophy is 400 patients a year. That's it. That's the entire population. The ability to address that in a, in a closed outcomes trial where you're dealing with someone who's being diagnosed at 12 years old and then 
basically they'll live until their 20s. You're talking decade or more for some of these people. And, and the ability to run that on a short, you know, outcomes-based trial in less than three years is a fallacy. It's just not going to happen. So I know there's some controversy around this, but frankly, I think what happened with Alzheimer's is, and the Biogen drug, Adjuhelm, is that, you know, this was going to be a pretty big, <laughs> big pile of sticker shock, unfortunately. You know, we were talking tens and hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Interestingly enough, you know, the drug, you know, if we don't have the drug currently, Alzheimer's is about a trillion dollars a year, depending on which study you look at in total cost and sunk cost for the U.S. economy. The, the question is, would we have gotten an endpoint out of that or not? Um, I've been quoted in STAT. I wrote an article, and I was very critical of uh, the amyloid beta thesis, calling it a failed hypothesis. Um, however, when you look at that Nature article from 2015, where they correlate the biomarker with cognitive decline, it, it does show evidentiary response there. Unfortunately, it takes 10 years to develop that pathway. And unfortunately, I, I just don't know. We've tried so far, no success, but um, to trash the entire pathway because of, um, you know, Biogen basically having a failed two-arm phase three trial and then coming back with the accelerated approval seems quite short-sighted. And uh, I, I think basically this was an opportunity for people who wanted to sit on the accelerated approval to sort of score some political points. And unfortunately, the big losers are going to be the patients who are sitting on those orphan drugs that currently don't have treatment because this is very, very, very risky. And I'm not the only person saying that. Uh, Scott Gottlieb and Mark McClellan and Endpoint said basically the same thing. There's a lot of us who work and do the analysis and look at the data who are saying, hey, wait a minute, this this may be a bridge too far. There is legislation winding its way through Congress. How dramatic a change in accelerated approval might we expect to see? Well, it depends on where it lands. And unfortunately, a lot of these uh, proposals that have been coming out of the U.S. Congress have been quite mercutial and hard to uh, hard to predict. You know, I got my crystal ball out. and Unfortunately, uh, it's not really giving me good answers. I, I, I wish I could tell you the Pallone bill that was initially proposed three, four months ago that we started looking at, which is why we got involved with this debate post uh, the work we did for Biogen. What was obvious to us is when you start putting a five-year cap, basically throwing out the accusation through legislation that anybody who's taking longer than five years to close with the FDA is a bad actor, that's just substantially not borne out by the data. Um, you know, Basically, what you're doing then is wiping out the 85% of untreated orphan conditions with an incidence rate of less than one in one million, which is where we are. The vast majority, the overwhelming majority of orphan treatments that still need to be developed are micro-orphans of less than one in one million incidence rate. And the idea that anybody would be able to do a hard outcome endpoint research study with FDA in less than five years for a population that minuscule is, is, is completely... Um, they're kidding themselves and they are being intellectually radically dishonest. So the Pallone bill would have been awful. Now, fortunately, cooler heads have prevailed, but it's taken four months of work and a lot of patients, you know, patient groups jumping up and down and pulling their hair and threatening to eat worms in order to get that taken out in PDUFA and the negotiations under PDUFA right now. But uh, the fact that they were willing to stand by that so long tells me that there's a lot of regulators there who don't care or at least are ill-informed enough where they're willing to play politics with this and, and monkey around with this pathway and potentially threaten something that could save lives. And, and that I find particularly noxious. 
There's also controversy over the accelerated approval pathway allowing for additional or secondary indications. You discussed the three cancer drugs. Why are these secondary indications controversial and how do a handful of drugs skew these numbers? Well, the the handful I mentioned alone are 52% of the three drugs I mentioned, again, Optivo, Gleevec, and Keytruda are responsible for 52% of all of the accelerated approval secondary indications that we looked at in our research. So overwhelmingly, these three drugs are, you know, basically driving those indications. Now, why is that? Well, (laughs) I mean... Keytruda is an incredibly effective late-stage oncology treatment that actually has some credibility and work on solid tumors. Um, If you are metastatic late-stage phase 4 cancer and you are probably looking at dying, the ability to, to, you know, basically move that on a few years hoping to find a cure would be kind of good, I would think. And Keytruda has been shown to be very, very effective, as has Gleevec, as has Optivo. So the idea that there is, again, some grand cabal mystery with FDA and that there's some grand corruption going on here is simply ridiculous. It's absurd. These are three drugs that are on the WHO's uh, essential medicines list. You know, <laughs> I mean, these are highly respected, very, very good oncology treatments. And the ability to be able to move those around and move them into indications where you show some ability to forestall tumor growth, I, I honestly don't see why that's a bad thing. Now, they're not cheap. No, they're not cheap. Um, and I think, again, what we're, what we're seeing here is effective treatments that are very, very good and maybe are the only ones that are working late stage are getting used a lot because oncologists are seeing that they work. I really have an issue with saying that that's a bad thing. I mean, if I was in a situation and, you know, Keytruda, $50,000 a dose under Medicare, according to the analysis we've seen from the MPAC report, um, okay, that's not cheap, but it's not you know, hugely expensive to, for those drugs. And eventually, Keytruda, I think, has been on the market for six, seven years. you probably got seven more years. Then it'll go generic. So this is the agreement we have. They've developed this drug. It works. It will become generic, and it'll be very effective then, too. So it's not like there's a big mystery here. And what we also need to remember, a lot of the orphan drugs that have been developed that are non-oncology, you know, again, overwhelmingly, the vast majority, 60 70% over the history of the pathway are oncology um, a lot of those were HIV drugs earlier, so it's been closer to 70, 80% over the last decade, fine. But the reality is that 20 to 30% that are non-cancer orphan indications, a lot of them are genetic indications with a biomarker, and you're not going to get a secondary indication. It's just not going to happen. So it's really um, biasing a lot of the decisions around three highly effective drugs that oncologists themselves and hematologists are saying, hey, we need this. This is the last option we've got in the drawer. Um, I honestly don't see, I, mean, I, I guess the other option is we stop prescribing it and letting people die six months or a year earlier. Um, that seems tremendously cynical to me. Let's talk about the vital transformation analysis. Uh, as a matter of disclosure, this was funded by industry, but what were you seeking to determine? If I can also add, it wasn't just industry. It was also uh, the CEOI of the um, World Economic Forum, which is uh, association with the patient group Us Against Alzheimer's. So there were a couple nonprofits involved in this too, and the bio organization as well, which is a nonprofit organization. What were you seeking to determine? Well, we just wanted to dig through the data. What we do at our firm, we don't make any predetermined opinions. We, we let the data guide us. 
we like to open up the hood and start pulling the engine apart and seeing, you know, if there's an engine knock, we want to know what's going on in there. We want to know if it's the pistons, the rings, or if you got a bearing, main bearing going out. We like to look at the data and see what's really there. We don't come in with predetermined opinions. We like to follow the actual numbers. And that's what I found so interesting with this study. We, we wanted to just see what was really going on with the accelerated approval. Was there an enormous amount of controversy around the ability? Was, was there a grand cabal stopping hard endpoints and, and you know doing a traditional FDA-approved three-phase trial? Were surrogate endpoints really just a scam and they weren't valuable? Would patients be better served without this pathway? Those were sort of the three questions. That's sort of the rhetoric, if you read in the media, that people are saying. We wanted to determine if that was true or not. So we wanted to sort of test those those sort of uh, straw men that are being thrown out at the pathway. We wanted to see how much of this was legit and how much was just air in the tire. And how did you go about conducting the study? What was the methodology you used? Well, what we did is we extracted the entire cohort of the last 20 years of accelerated approvals, removing any drugs that were repurposed. There's, you'll, you'll see like you know, half a dozen or a dozen of these things are, you know, there's a blue dye that's used to determine oxygenation from 1956 that gets repurposed for an orphan condition. And again, and they're not the majority, they're a slim minority. But so we remove that stuff. And then we just want to look at, okay, we have primary sort of first new indications, and we have all the secondary indications. What's really going on here? What's the time to market? How much has been invested? How much, uh, you know, what's the real return on investment for these things? If people are investing, obviously investors, there's a high failure rate in biotechnology and biopharma overall. The failure rate, people like to say 90%, which is true, but that belies the fact that neurological disorders fail 99% of the time. Oncologies fail 92 to 93% of the time. So as an investor, you're taking on a heck of a lot of risk and you want to know practically what's going to happen from the standpoint of your investment if you have a change to this pathway. So we looked at the amount of money using two studies, by one by the, an academic named Jaya Sundara and one by Damasi. Uh, Damasi, the activists, a lot of activists don't like the Damasi study because they say it's too high. A lot of the industry doesn't like the Jaya Sundara because they say it's too low. So we decided to use them both. <laughs> so we'd say that would be our range. We'd say, look, we'll use them both. We'll even use, we'll, we'll use them as a range and that'll be somewhere in between. Thus probably lies the truth. So we use those two cost basis. We scaled it based on the size of the clinical trials and all that's declared and all 206 therapies and approvals that we found in the data set. And uh, then we modeled it out using the actual trial cost, using these two studies for cost basis, and then looked at the uh, actual revenue that's been created by these drugs once they've been approved. And then we determined if they would prof if they would have a fair rate of return. And if they wouldn't, they would probably be withdrawn from the market. And that's what we wanted to determine was how many would be withdrawn if this wasn't there and how many would still come to market. Before we talk about the actual findings, I, I think it'd be useful to explain one concept for listeners. That's a, a key financial metric known as net present value. Can you explain what's meant as net present value when we talk about that with regards to drugs and its relevance? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the big killer here with biotech investing and developing a product is time. It takes a long time. This has always been the problem with Alzheimer's disease that I mentioned, the biomarker. You know, the biomarker looks pretty legit when you look at that 2015 nature study, but it takes 10 years. And the fact is you've only got, by the time you do your clinical research, you may only have 10 or 11 years of sales 
before your product goes generic and you lose your revenue streams. So the question is, what is the investment you're going to make today worth 10 years from now, five years from now, 12 years from now? So essentially, if you think about this with interest, like we have today, inflation, if you put um, you know, $100 down today, at 10% inflation, you know, things would cost something that you would buy today for $100 in seven years is $200, roughly, give or take. Well, that works the opposite way because there's another way to look at that. It's not just that things cost more. It also means the value of your money is worth less now. So what you have for $100 now in 10 years is only worth $50. So that $100 you're looking at today is worth half that much if you look at the other side of that equation of inflation. So instead of requiring $200 to buy something, you could say, well, this $100 I have now is actually only going to be worth 50 you know, 10 years from now. So that's sort of how a net present value works. It looks at your investment today and then looking at costs and inflation and risks, it then values what that would be in the future. So it gives you a net idea based on how much money you're going to be potentially earning five, 10 years from now. It allows you to balance in an apples to apples, like for like way. Is this a good investment or not? given the rate of return I will need to have. And obviously with 10% inflation, an 11 to 15% cost of capital, uh, you know, this, this what you would need to charge against your money to reduce the value each year is probably legit. We only used 11%, which is generally the industry standard, but with inflation running 8, 9, 10%, we could, probably could have done 15 or 20, but we didn't do that. We wanted to be uh, play this uh, pretty straight bat, as we would say in cricket, so we didn't do that. So we kept it pretty close. But the reality is what that shows is, you know, even if you're making what looks like good revenue 10 years from now, you, know, you still have to account for that investment today because otherwise you can invest in apps, you can invest in clean energy, you can invest in you know, electric vehicles, you name it. Um, you don't have to invest in biotech. And, and unfortunately, this is a business. It's a very important business. It's a life-saving business, but it's still a business. And investors have to know they can be made whole at the end of the day. And what did your study find? Well, what did we find? I think the, the first thing that was really interesting, and this came as quite a shock given all, as you mentioned, the secondary endpoints and this sort of rhetoric that, you know, there's a bunch of bad actors there who aren't closing their clinical trials in time with the, the FDA to convert and provide evidence. What we found is the accelerated approvals that have been, the, the, the proven accelerated approvals by FDA, the median time of approval and conversion is three years. So most, you know, a median half of the companies who are approved for the accelerated approval clear all their FDA requirements within three years. Again, that came as quite a shock. Matter of fact, a quarter of them, 25% are two years or less. So really quite surprising how the rhetoric doesn't necessarily meet the data by 75% of the companies are clearing in four years. And then what you find is, yeah, Genzyme took 18 years. And why? Because they only had 40 people in their clinical trial. And that's basically the entire population. So what you find is you see these drugs going out 18 years and that final 20% that the Plone bill would have basically wiped out had we put that in place. And the overwhelming majority of those are very, very small niche orphan indications that require long outcomes trials. So contrary to the rhetoric, 
you know, there's real time that's required here. And what we then found is if you start putting delays in requiring companies to, we're not going to take like the Biogen example, where we're going to put coverage with evidence and you're going to need to continue that phase three trial that you've just done for another three or four years. If we apply that to the whole population in the accelerated approval, a three-year delay, for example, if we use the Jayasundara numbers, which everyone knows is too, or thinks is too low from a cost standpoint, you're thinking about 35% would no longer have a positive net present value. So again, investors would probably walk away from a third. If we use the Demasi, it's two-thirds. So somewhere between 33 and 66%, so probably in the midpoint there, about 50% would disappear immediately. Uh, that, that, again, was quite shocking to us. Um, it just shows that very small changes to this thing that may sound good on the surface, you know, the old expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, there's a lot of good intentions being paved down right now around the accelerated approval and um, the impacts could be quite devastating and, and more than I anticipated, frankly. And, and draw those impacts out specifically for rare disease therapies. What would they be? Well, again, 82% of this pathway, of the accelerated approval pathway, are orphan conditions, period. And the overwhelming ones that are small, niche, genetic-based, you know, the Gaucher's disease, they're the ones that are taking more than five years. So you're really attacking the smallest, narrowest indications when you start throwing around this idea that there's a lot of bad actors out there. Now, look, I'm not saying that there aren't bad actors. That's fine. This is the beauty of statistics. We're not looking for specifics. We're not looking for an ad hoc example of one actor. What we're looking at is the population as a whole. And what we can say is overwhelmingly, the actors do behave logically given the fact that these smaller indications take longer. And that makes sense. That makes sense because there just takes longer to develop the evidence. One of the concerns that your study raised was the threat of having arbitrary timelines for the completion of confirmatory trials being set to five years or less. How real a possibility do you see that being, and what would be the consequence of that? Well, Nick Shipley and John Murphy from Bio and I had a long podcast ourselves on their Vital Health podcast, and we asked this specific question. And Nick Shipley, who's you know obviously, you know he deals with the Hill all the time. I mean, his comment was. And I'm paraphrasing here slightly, but it's like, well, look, they went down this road a long time for about six months and it was only under, you know, Padufa and a lot of pulling and a lot of patient groups getting very, very upset that this changed. So, yeah, I do think this is a risk. Absolutely. Because they were willing to keep this in for a long time, a long time. My concerns around a lot of these decisions are. The fact that these are becoming political decisions around a process that is deeply, deeply data-driven and economic. The investors and the scientists who are developing these drugs know the evidence that they require. They know the amount of time and cost it's going to take to do it. And you're already dealing with neurological disorders, particularly with Alzheimer's, of a failure rate of 99.5%. 99.5% of all clinical developments in Alzheimer's fail and have failed over the last 30 years. So if you start ratcheting up these requirements and ratcheting down the ability to even get a fair rate of return, and then you're increasing the cost it's going to take, investors and biotech companies are just going to walk away from these indications. And this is the implication that these politicians, unfortunately, politically don't understand. There are real, fundamental, logical, 
economic consequences to these decisions um, that we can measure and count. And we talk to the investors regularly. We talk to the clinical developers regularly. They understand this better than just about anyone. This is not rhetoric. This is reality. You will not get a fair rate of return. You will not be able to recoup your investment, particularly with the equity markets. My God, NASDAQ fell 50% last week at one point. It's come back a bit. But in 2020, quarter one before COVID hit, 80% of all the listings on the NASDAQ were biotech listings. So the equity markets are vital to this. Liquidity is key. Cash is king. And if we start messing with this and killing this ability to get a fair rate of return by putting up these arbitrary timelines, this is going to go away because nobody's going to be able to invest in these. It's just the numbers will not add up. The rare disease community doesn't like to think about the power economics plays in guiding drug development decisions and the consequences policy changes can play in that. Given the large unmet need that rare conditions represent, how concerned should people be about changes to accelerated approval? And should people who care about rare diseases about evolving legislation? Well, I, absolutely. I, again, I know economics is a dirty word, and I know that we want to be altruistic. I completely understand that. Nobody is going into biotech because they are like Drake Duck rolling around in their gold doubloons in their cartoon basement with uh, Huey, Dewey, and Louie rolling around throwing money at each other. That's not how this works. The reality is there are other industries that have a far better rate of return. If you look at the New York University analysis of sector by sector, uh, last year, the pharmaceutical sector had a net-net profitability of 14%. That's slightly less than the soft drink sector. Contrary to popular rhetoric, this is not an overwhelmingly profitable sector. It's been harder and harder to get a fair rate of return on these assets. Um, you know, The fact is there's high risk here, and you're talking billions and billions of dollars of investment are required. You know, The old joke I like to say is you know, a boat is a hole in the water, you throw money. Well, a biotech company is a furnace, you throw boats. This is a very, very expensive business. It's a very uncertain business. And frankly, the accelerated approval has been a vital tool in promoting the ability of American, particularly American small biotech under you know, 500 million a year, give or take, has been dominating the development of these assets. Over half of all assets approved in the last 10 years, 363 assets approved by the FDA, over half of them came from small U.S.-based biotech, predominantly California, Massachusetts, and uh, North Carolina. Uh, th that's globally. We, we're dominating the sector. The U.S. is leading innovation in this, in this space, and the accelerated approval has been a hugely important part of that. Uh, to negate that or ignore that is really, really doing a huge disservice in, in, to the taxpayer in particular, um, as well as you know, industry and people who are developing this. Duane Schultes, CEO of the healthcare consulting firm Vital Transformation. Duane, thanks so much for your time today. It's my pleasure. Happy anytime at all. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. 
You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.